What is up, brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Mitch Grace Show. So excited to bring another awesome episode to you. And I say it every single time. At one point, I got really frustrated at myself for saying that our episodes are so awesome, but they are. So I'm going to say it every time. We have another great guest that I've had the honor of meeting and spending a little time with. Um, welcome to the show, Eliza. Make sure I get this right. Van Court. Eliza Van Court. Yep. Did it. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> I have people on. It's like, oh, that's pronounced this way. No, it's not. <laughs> well, actually, it is Eliza. And most people say Eliza. And I never uh -huh. used to correct them. And now I'm like, I'm all about people's names being said correctly. So uh -huh. I correct name as well <laughs> yes you have to have an e i think sometimes though that's also an accent thing like depending on where you are um i'm kind of from the south and so eliza is easy to say but i know some people huh? from other parts of the country they don't ever say an e hardly and so yeah <laughs> yeah awesome yeah, welcome to the show eliza things i never thought about it that way <laughs> yeah yeah well welcome to the show we're so happy to have you on how are you i'm good i mean okay it's, it's COVID. It's 2020. Yeah. I am good 2020 good, but no one's totally happy right now because, you know, there's a lot of suffering going on in the world. But all things considered, I'm doing pretty well. Awesome. Yeah. We're going to get into that a little bit, I have a feeling, today in our, uh, in our conversation. So, But I have to ask, mm. uh, when people go to your website, ElizaVanCourt.com, we'll put that in the show notes, there's this adjective that you use that I love. Okay. And Space maker, what in the world is a space <laughs> maker? That's the question. Ready, I, set, go. I think you might be actually thinking about uh, space claimer. Oh, space claimer. I messed space it up. Claimer. You're, you're but, it, but it's claimer. close. You're, you're, it's actually kind of similar. Um, Maybe we should add one, space maker as well. Space maker? Well, I guess if you are claiming space, you're making space for yourself and others. <laughs> so perhaps those like go together. Um, well, basically, I wrote a book, which I'm contractually not allowed to talk about a lot of the stuff in the book yet, but I can tell you the title and the general idea behind it. Um, it's, and it's, it's actually available for pre-sale on Amazon, so, um, but I can't tell you about it, so you probably don't want to buy it right now, <laughs> but it's called um, A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard. And to claim space is basically to live the life of your choosing bravely and unapologetically. And claiming space as a woman can be difficult. Uh, if you're a woman of color, it can be even more difficult. And so the book really is about how to claim space. And that was, um, I have, I spent a year writing about how to do that. And there are five different ways you can do it. And I, it's a book with actionable tools that teaches you how to do that. So it's not just this theoretical conversation about what is claiming space. It's, this is what claiming space is. And now we're going to take an entire book to tell you how to do that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so a few questions come to mind. Number one, as a guy, mm -hmm. if, I, if I see a book claiming space, uh, stand tall, raise your voice and be heard, that is a woman's guide to claiming space. Mm -hmm. As a guy, if I read that book, um, mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to figure out how to shape this question since we can't get into the nitty gritty of the book yet. Well, we can get into the general, you know. So what, what would your thoughts be... Um, as a male, the reflective points from a woman's guide to claiming space, as a male who would potentially read that book? Right, that's a really interesting question. And at first I used to say, well, you know, men are kind of used to being centralized. And so the question I often get is, well, what is this for me? 
And you know, my first answer was, well, it's not for you. Um, but then right. I had, and that's okay. But now actually I've had a lot of men who have been pre-readers of the book. And I've had women as well, but I've also had men. And there's been two different categories of men. The, the white men have found that the book has given them insight into the experience of women. Mm. And it's really helped them if they're fathers, if they're husbands, if they have, you know, I mean, anybody who intersects with a woman has said, wow, I, I had no, I suddenly I understand my mother better, you know? <laughs> so yeah. I think that's a really powerful thing because it, get, you know, we can't really live in somebody's experience, right. um, but we can read about it. And, and that's how, you know, we tell our stories by under, that's how we understand each other. So I think that's one thing. Um, men of color, have said there's a lot of intersectionality and that some of the book is not for them. And they're, they are the first to say, you know, I really realized some of this book's not for me and that's okay. Um, but then the other, and they've said, you know, I've gained a lot of insight into women, but then some of them have also said, some of this book is really for anybody who faces an ism. And they found it incredibly useful. Some of it was very gender specific, but some of it's really for anybody who's dealing with any kind of pushback because of something about them, their physicality, who, what they, how they present, that they can't change. And so um, I think it's a universal book and I think it has the potential to really make an impact. I'm really excited about it actually. Yeah. Yeah. The, the and, you know, I gotta say one thing about Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I know. I mean, the one thing I have to say, because um, I, I feel it would be wrong not to, is this book is a village of people who created this book. I wrote the book, but I have an army of people behind me that read the book, that gave feedback on the book. I have women, I almost called the book Conversations in the Bathroom, because some of it was inspired. The women's bathroom is a magical place. Yes. It's magical. Uh, and so... Um, and so unless you're a trans woman, in which case, you know, we have to change that. We have to allow trans women, obviously, into the women's bathroom. But because uh, that's just appalling that they're not allowed to enjoy that incredible magical space for women. But um, but if you are in the women's bathroom, you know, you'll go up to a woman and say something in the women's bathroom. You won't say anywhere else. And I almost called the book Conversations in the Bathroom. And what this really does is it takes those things that women from my seminars and talks who didn't want to say these things during the Q&A publicly came to me in the bathroom and asked me the questions. And I just sort of took those conversations and put them into the sunlight. Yeah, it's interesting as a creator, um, especially a writer, you're always looking for those small magical moments of opportunity, right? And that's exactly what you're talking about. It's like you gather all these pieces of a story and then start bringing it together as the whole. Mm -hmm. And I find myself doing that as a writer quite often. It's like, wow, that really impacted me or that impacted someone else. And it's like, note to self, remember that. <laughs> because right. That's something that's powerful and usable. Yeah, so it's, it's really amazing that that's kind of what sounds like inspired a lot of how this book is written and crafted. And yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a big part of it. I mean, it was a it was sort of an intersection of my personal journey and then all the women who have spoken to me in my career, including my acting students, because I have this kind of eclectic yeah. background of political science and acting. And so it was really just listening to people and hearing their stories. And the amazing thing is, you know, same story, different facts over and over and over and over yes. again. Yes. It's pretty easy to figure out what to put in the book because I kept hearing the same stories over and over again. Yeah, I like to tell people all the time, humanity is humanity. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the story is really the same. The details, like you said, the facts change and mm -hmm. are, are exchangeable. 
the basic story of humanity is the story of humanity. And it's almost like it's written into our DNA. And then we get to have our own experiences within that story. And, and that, that's an incredible thing. Well, I have to say, um, I didn't tell you this before when we were talking uh, pre-show, but as a dad of two daughters who are now grown adults who are also African-American, I'm very excited to read this book because <laughs> I think you're right. When you can put yourself into the ideology of someone that you can't necessarily relate with, it really changes perspective. And so yeah. thank you for investing in that. That's, I think that's a wonderful thing. You know, I, I really think it's important to highlight the voices um, of all women. And in fact, the final, without saying what it's about, but the final uh, aspect, the final of the five aspects of the book, the final chapter of that particular part, um, I seeded my space and I have a lot of young women of color who I mentor as a cookhouse fellow at Cornell University. And I actually asked them some questions because often our youth aren't in books. You know, we quote experts. Right. right. And, and so that we never get to hear from the next generation because they're not an expert, but they're actually an expert at their own experience. Yes. Yes. So I wanted their voices and particularly young women of color. You know, they're made to be invisible by white people, by me, you know, by, our, by people who just do not regard them as they would their white counterparts. And so what I did is I asked them, you know, would you like, we, I asked them some questions in a text thread and just to get some guidance from them. And their answers were so brilliant. I said, hey, can I take these and just put them at the end of my book and just step away and let your voices close out the final part of the book? And they said, yes. And what they have to say is so brilliant and so beautiful. It, um, it chokes me up talking about it. It's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's crazy is that there's almost two demographics of people that we, that we avoid out, outside of the, the kind of obvious ones that we're talking about, people of color and women. But there's kind of two other demographics that we often avoid, and it's young people and older people. Mm. It's almost mm -hmm. like once people hit 75, we forget about them. And before they hit 30, we don't want to hear from them. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like you think about the, the, what I love about young people, I spent a lot of time in youth ministry and, and I've spent years uh, in mental health work with teenagers. And what I love about teenagers is their curiosity and their honest perspective. They, mm -hmm. don't, they don't really care when they finally get to share their feelings. They don't care what people think. Mm -hmm. and you can give them that safe space. And that's almost, it sounds like that's exactly what you witnessed when you just gave them a platform. Yeah. Oh yeah, they, they, I mean, my own kids, uh, the people that I mentor, they, I always say, I think they teach me a lot more than I teach yes. them. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And then that older generation is such a treasure trove of shoulds and shouldn'ts and woulds and couldn'ts. <laughs> and we're yeah. missing that. Yeah, it's crazy yeah. to me. And I think it's actually amplified with women because Yes. Women, so much of their social capital is derived by their looks. Mm -hmm. You know, how somebody looks, women get a huge, I mean, pretty privilege is real for men and women, but it's much more powerful yes. for women. Yes. And historically, it used to be if you were a white woman back in, you know, not that long ago, your entire life was dependent on how good looking you were, because yes. if you were good looking, you were lucky enough to get a man who had a profession. And that historical memory has completely continued. And so I think that when women get to an age where they're no longer considered beautiful by the standards that we put in this society, which are insane, but whatever, um, 
they become even they become invisible to many people and it's a shame because old, older people are they have more wisdom than we do they have a lot to share and it's we need to make sure i always talk to my kids about the importance you know of listening to people who have more experience i had a wonderful teacher in high school jim Car scarpula who said you know you don't have to you shouldn't have to learn everything from experience you know <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Some of it, some of it should be from listening to people who have experienced things that you don't want to, mm. and then learning from them. And I think sometimes we feel like we have to learn everything from experience, and there are things we can avoid just by listening. Really, it's interesting you say that. When I was a teenager, I had a man tell me a similar piece of advice, and the advice he gave was, "The smartest people in the world learn from other people's mistakes." That's right. And that's, right. I, that's always resounded. And it's a very similar, a very similar ideology that you'll know, so observe and listen and ask questions. You can learn so much um, from others that that is incredible. Yeah, so I'm going to go I want, in general. I'm sorry, but our society in general in America, we have such a youth oriented culture in many ways. Um, if you go to places in Asia, for example, I was in Hong Kong working. You know, there's just so much more respect for elders there. It's it's stunning. You know, I mean, they they get the, the people defer to them because they think they have yeah. wisdom to share, and um, I think we really need to do more of that in this country for sure. Yeah, it's very similar. I spent a lot of my teenage years on the the Navajo reservation, and in the indigenous mm -hmm. cultures, it's very much the same way. That the you know the elders of the community are regarded as sacred, and, yeah. and you protect them and you listen to them and um, and so, but, but for the most part, you're right. In our modern American situation, we, we kind of just shovel them aside and stick them in these other buildings that no one goes and visits. <laughs> and we just, it's sad. We just forget about them. But yeah, that just, when you said that a while ago, I thought, hold on a second. There's something that's really valuable there. And I love what you're saying about, about the, the woman's perspective and what has happened, especially to, to white women, because for so many years, it, it, and it still is to this day. I had a conversation with a, a lady the other day. We were talking about how how so many people put their investment and their value in outer appearance. Well, the reason they do that is because we've built a society that has told you you have to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, oh, go ahead. Yeah, we're well. We're just we're just meeting the ramifications of that. That now we have a generation that has totally valued themselves on that. Yeah, I mean, I think black women face that in. I mean, in some ways, a double whammy, right? Because oh, 100%, have, yes. You know, they have the standard of beauty, and then they also have the standard of whiteness that has been held up as this uh, this crazy ideal, which is just, you know, ridiculous. And luckily, that is changing. But yeah, white, I mean, white, you know, women of color, working class white women have always been working, you yeah. know. Yes. But if you were a, a upper middle class woman or upper class woman, your, that was, you know, your looks were much, were really important because you were not expected to work. So, um, but there were obviously, you know, as, as a friend of mine said, who studies um, black women, she said, well, you know, white women may have had a gilded cage, but black women and, you know, working class white women were just trying to survive, you know? So uh, I think white women had a little better, <laughs> a lot better, but it was still, it's still oppressive nonetheless. Yeah, reflecting back on when my, my girls especially were younger, I can't count how many times we had to tell people, you don't come up and touch their hair. You don't do that to anyone else. And people don't think about those little things, but but it's that is a signification 
of exactly what you're talking about. That we, we would just be in a store and some strange person would just come up and, and want to touch their hair. And it's like, you're not doing that to anyone else. Like, what's happening here? You know, and we did our best to use it as a, a passageway to a different conversation. Right. But at the same time, it's just incredible that you even have to do that. Like, it's, it would never cross my mind in the store to walk up to someone and just touch their hair. And it would happen to the girls all the time. Well, I mean, it's that we are taught as white people that what's mine is mine and what's yours, if you are a person mm. of color, is mine. So, so I, I mean, we, we owned, I mean, the enslaved people, <laughs> we owned them, we could do whatever we wanted, you know, and so unfortunately, you know, that historic memory has continued in some ways, such as that, you know, I mean, I, I've, it still stuns me, the stories that my friends who are black women tell me about having, you know, people touching their children or touching their bellies when they were pregnant would have come up and touched my child without my permission no way not in a million years but you know my friend my black women friends have said they've got to say no 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 you know i'm sorry and then they get all kinds of other stuff as well i mean i have a friend who had three little boys and she's a black woman and she's on the floor and they're crawling all over her like children do to their mommies and this person said um oh look at the little monkeys crawling all over you and she said, she's so good. She teaches this stuff. So of course she was ready. And she just looked at them with a smile and said, I think you're going to have to find another word. <laughs> just a great way to handle it. But you know, it's that same sort of thing that's just pervasive and you're always fighting against that tide. You know, as white parents, we are, there's a whole world that we just don't deal with unless of course we are a white parent with children of color. And then it's very different. Yeah, that you're exactly right. And, and oh gosh, when you just said what those people said to that lady, my heart just sunk because because we we've been there and and I always tell people when you're when you're a white guy especially witnessing some of those things it it shakes you I mean it because of the things you've just said there there is a culture and a historical voice that echoes through the soul of people that have been oppressed and suppressed and abused and owned. And who have oppressed. Yes, (laughs) and going back to your kind of platform specifically, Mm -hmm. um, it's time that that changes for women in general across the board, whether whether they be white or people of color or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, But it's just, I'm sure you have felt the challenge of bringing that voice, that conversation to the table. Mm-hmm. So what is that, what does that look like? I want to go there first. What does it look like when you were able to go speak with people <laughs> quite a few months ago? Back in the day. We were back in the day, right? What, 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 does that, what did that look like when you were speaking to an audience, whether it was a blended male, female audience, or just fe- well, Let's go there. That, hit, that, that actually came to mind. Did you get a different reception, male, female audience, comparative to a female-only audience? Um, it was really interesting, actually. Uh, partly it was because of the work that I do, often I would have a disproportionately female audience because people can opt to come right. see my talks. Um, but what I found to be really interesting is that when I, for example, give a talk on communication, and my talk is really about actionable steps on how to communicate and stand in your power. Um, it's in my book, it's what I do, it's what my coaching is, it's what my seminars are about. And it's really hands-on stuff. Some of the stuff is universal. So for example, um, volume. Volume, uh, there's some gender specific 
stuff is bonding. That's probably not the best example, but there are some things that are just absolutely really universal. And then there are some things that are quite specific. For example, cadence, how quickly or how slowly you speak. This is very gender specific. Um, I would say, okay, so for the men, this, and for the women, this, you know, so, and I would start the talk by saying, you know, you can't talk about issues of communication without addressing issues of race and gender and all of our isms, because our communication is impacted by our isms, of yeah. course, right? Yeah. And so people would then come up to me afterwards and say, or they would remark in the talks, you know, like once in a while, a man would say, wow, you spent a lot of time talking about women. And, you know, we'd often be staying in a group and all the women would say, no, she just said men this and women this. You're just not used to the fact that usually <laughs> you don't mention women at all. And so for me, that was always an amazing experience that I wanted to make sure everybody, you know, all genders were heard and all of them got feedback that would work for them. But so much of the time with communication coaching and a lot of other work, I mean, if you look at the studies, um, that are done, they're largely done on men. Um, you know, men are so centralized that when you say 50% of the time you're talking about women, it feels like they're talking about women most of the time when I'm just simply not. So um, my, in my idea, you know, sometimes I am asked to do talks just for women, but, um, and I also do uh, anti-racist uh, anti communication talks. So there are things where kind of are more specialized, but a lot of the more general talks that I give are just really about how to communicate effectively and powerfully. Mm. And, um, and men often have a really visceral reaction to the fact that I'm calling out the differences. It's really interesting. But on the, on the other hand, some of the men come up to me or say in the Q&A, wow, I feel like I've learned so much about how to be a better boss. I didn't realize I was doing these power plays to people, but now I heard you and I realize I am and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and thank you so much. And that's actually most of the time. Most people are really excited to learn these tips. Um, but there are people who get it really, you know, because it's just so different. We're just so used to certain voices being centralized and certain experiences being centralized. It's almost like Christmas shopping. Okay, go with me here. <laughs> a, lot of, a, lot, a lot of men back in the day were, oh we have to go christmas shopping again it's like yes, bro you go yes. once a year get over it <laughs> <laughs> yes right? that is so true is <laughs> and so, so the conversation you bring up any little thing about women or something they don't want it's like oh that's all we talked about it's like for 10 minutes that's all we talked about right. come on we're here for an hour literally <laughs> i said for men for women and you were like wow you talked about women a lot it's like no no 50 percent, <laughs> probably less but i mentioned the differences <laughs> that's right. cool right i love you know, that i, I blame people for that i just i really don't and i don't get offended i think that it's simply that we are trained you know that is literally what people get yes they get i mean when you look at a communication talk i cannot tell you how many clients come to me who are women or they are men of color and, or, you know, white women, women of color, men of color. And they say, you know, I went and I did this, went to this communication talk and I got worse. And I don't understand, like I've been getting worse. So I heard that I should talk to you. And I said, well, you know, that's because most communication talks talk about every person, but really they're talking about what works for white men. Yes. And so some of the tips for white men are really useful for white men and they're actually worse for white women. Right. And so, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's really fascinating. It's, I, I, I could go on and on, but it's really fascinating to me are what we expect and how we react when we don't get that. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, there, there is a sense of innocence and ignorance uh, for many people because they've never been confronted with this idea that what you're doing, even maybe out of sincerity, is not the right thing to be doing. Right. And, right. and that's, that's across all boards. But I do see that often when you're dealing with uh, women and men. And, and now in our culture, thankfully, you're dealing with you know, transgender or uh, what, whatever. We could go down the list yeah. of things that have Do changed or, yeah, yeah, the yeah. good. But that gap, um, even though I think it is closing, is still the chasm is so wide. And I think it is because of ignorance more than it is uh, being a jerk. I think yeah, a lot of people are just oh, yeah. I agree. And I don't even think of it as ignorance. I mean, I guess it is, but I, I think of it more as programming. Mm. I mean, I'm a total sci-fi nerd. I'm the worst. <laughs> You're going to hear so many sci-fi references. I'm the worst nerd. But, you know, I think of it like the Matrix. Yes. You know, when you're in the Matrix, you have no idea you're in the Matrix. You don't know that you're doing these things. You're just plugged in. And it's until you're unplugged, you're going to keep doing the thing you've always done. And can you blame those you know, people? Absolutely not. And it's, you know, our job, I think, as people who are trying to disrupt certain patterns that aren't working for all of society is to just help people realize, hey, you're in the matrix. Let's do things differently and not put shame or blame on that. Because I think that's what makes people really shut down and not listen. What, what keeps kind of echoing within me as you're telling the story and the, and the powerful work that you, you do is the small act that we were taught in the South. And I think most young boys are taught is that you open the door for girls. But I remember as a kid being taught that, but it was taught not from a standpoint of really just politeness. Mm -hmm. It was actually taught with a subliminal message of they're inferior. (laughs) And I remember working with some teenage girls one time and they told me, we don't like it. These are 15, 16 year old girls. And they said, we don't like it when boys open the door for us. And I said, why? And they said, because we can open the door for ourselves. And that to me was such a powerful statement. And their meaning wasn't, we don't need men. Their right. meaning was, we have the power to do things ourselves and we're, be- we're tired of being made to feel like we can't. Right. And I think that's sort of the, I love what you just said, because so much of this is really about just believing people's experience yes. and saying, okay, so that's what you want. That's cool. Um, I, you know, I was dating a guy and he was a very sweet man and he used to always open the door for me. And for him, it was just a sign to say, hey, I love you. I'm gonna open this car door for you. And when he first started doing it, and he would also stand up when I came to the table. And the first time he did that, I was like, what the hell is he doing? Like, <laughs> I've never even experienced this. This is just not the people that I usually hang out with. So I'm like, why are you standing? And then we're standing there once talking to somebody and he's still standing and he's like, are you gonna sit down? And I- I realized he was waiting for me to sit. And then on the sidewalk, he always wanted to be toward the, the street. And there were all these little things that his parents had taught him are just, to him, it was a way of saying, I love you. I think you're special. And I had to really sit with myself. And I, cause I know the historical roots of those things, yes. Yes. right? Yes. Women are weak and they, men have to protect them. Women have to open the door for that, you know. But at the same time for me, I, I kind of feel like personally, I'm going to pick my battles. And if it makes him feel good to open a door for me, um, and that's his way of saying, I love you, then cool. You know, now if another, another woman might say, you know, not cool. I, it just really makes me feel like weak every time you do it. Then you just say, okay, 
But I think that's a lot of working, you know, any kind of interaction and communication really is just about believing the person's experience and honoring it. And if I had said, you know, listen, I really can't stand it when you open the door for me, I think you would have said, okay, cool. You know? Right. So I think it's really, you know, I think we have to really believe each other more and listen to each other more. And, and I think that's really half the battle. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's almost like this, this mutual agreement of compassion has to be found. Mm -hmm. so yeah. I have compassion and empathy for your experience and your story and whatever I can do to empower that and conversely the same. And that's when we can really begin closing this gap that we're talking about. But, you know, the word that comes to mind when I talk about that is humility. There has to be a humility there that says, especially coming from a white guy, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I, I just know in dealing with white yeah. men, there has to be a humility that says, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps all the time. You're not the person in charge all the time. <laughs> and it's a lowering of that guard that can then lead to that compassion and conversation. Yeah, I actually wrote an article on this on LinkedIn. Um, that's that I, it's called Mindful Ignorance. My life is Elastigirl because, you know, as I said, I'm a nerd. But um, I, <laughs> so I have a connective tissue thing that I don't really talk about. I have something called hypermobility syndrome. And there's an extreme of that syndrome where actually uh, your heart can be elastic. So it's basically a thing where your, your connective tissue doesn't work the way other people do and you're very, very flexible, which sounds awesome. But if you, for me, since I have a really mild case of it, um, if I don't work out every single day um, and do very specific exercises as if I have injured every single connective joint in my body, I will injure every single connective joint wow. in my body. Oh. And so people, I don't really talk about it a lot. Um, and people will often say, oh, it's so, it must be so nice to spend so much time at the gym. You know, oh, it must be so awesome. Like you just have so much time. And I will say, you know, well, I'm, I'm hypermobile, like, and then I'll have to explain it to them. And often people just can't quite, they right. don't, it's new to them, they don't understand it, so they don't believe it. Um, so I tell the story about how I was going to get orthotics because I'm hypermobile. And this woman kept, you know, I kept saying, oh, you got to adjust it this way, adjust it this way. And finally I said, you know, I really appreciate you dealing with my princess in the pea kind of thing. And she said, Eliza, I have people who have hypermobility all the time in here. And I know what you go through. I have no idea what it's like, but I believe you. And I just thought, oh, wow. It was just like, okay, this feels great. And I think that's the same thing with isms and with just any kind of communication. And, you know, the, the extension of that story is I was talking to one of my girlfriends once and she told me that I'd done something that was racist. She's a black woman. And I started getting really defensive and I started saying, well, no, it's because of this and this and this and this and this. And she said, Eliza, I need to stop you right there because you're being really white right now. <laughs> and, I, and I said, blah, blah, blah. she said, no, no, no. And, and she said, when people of color tell you about their experience and how you've impacted them, your only job is to listen and believe them. Yes. And I said, but, 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 and she said, okay, now you're being even whiter. Listen, you just have to listen and believe me. And I started thinking about that. And of course, you know, extrapolating my own experience as a woman, somebody with a uh, you know, hypermobility syndrome and how I really get frustrated when people don't believe me mm -hmm. and that it's our job to understand that we need to be mindfully ignorant. 
we need to be mindful that we are ignorant yes. and go through life sort of saying, okay, there are things I will never understand. And I just need to believe that person and understand that I'm ignorant and that that's okay. Yeah, that, that's powerful. That is so powerful to, to give yourself the permission to just shut up and believe what the other person is telling you. That, yeah. that there's so much power there. Yeah, wow. And it's hard to do. Because <laughs> I, I feel bad. I don't want to do it. Yeah, this is why we call it practice, right? Because we're practicing every day. <laughs> practicing. No, I'm not being racist. No, I'm perfectly not racist. <laughs> right, right. So, Eliza, there, there is a reason that people arrive where they are. And there mm -hmm. is a reason that uh, you're, you're so eloquently and knowledgeably bringing a voice to the conversation specifically mm -hmm. about women. Mm -hmm. How did you arrive here? What, what's, what's the journey been like? What, um, what inspired or motivated you to go, hold on a second, this needs a voice? Yeah, I mean, I think it's twofold. Um, I think in my adult life, I guess I was, well, I guess I can start with my younger life and kind of very quickly summarize. Um, but it really comes from my life experience. My mother, when I was about four and a half, uh, became paranoid schizophrenic. Mm. And um, she went from this vibrant, beautiful, brilliant woman who taught English to kids in Harlem and was really innovative teacher to, you know, not recognizing me. She was wow. so sick at times. And um, she took me... Um, illegally so I was actually considered like a missing I was a missing person you know I had a national APP out on me wow. and she took me from New York to Texas once right out from under my father and then New York to California twice once by truck so hitchhiking across the country from truck stop to truck stop to truck stop and if you can imagine being a little kid mm. um, with your paranoid schizophrenic mother going in trucks with men um, you know, it's not a good experience. And so I learned very quickly to be very small uh, and that I, to be invisible so that I would stay safe. And it took me a really long time to start realizing that being invisible isn't safe, it's quite dangerous. Right. So that was sort of the beginning of my journey. Um, and I think there were all kinds of different things that affected me along the way that changed my perspective. Um, you know, once when I, during that time, I was in a foster care, I was in a all, all black neighborhood, I was the only white person. And, you know, it wasn't nearly the same as being the only black kid in all white neighborhood, because nobody was mean to me. Everybody was incredibly welcoming and loving, but I was the other. And that gave me a tiny, tiny insight into what that might feel like. Um, and my foster mother was the most wonderful, incredible woman. So I think that kind of impacted me. Um, and then eventually as an adult, um, I forged a life for myself. I had children. I started an acting school. This is my green room. My students, when they graduate, they sign this. For those listening on audio, uh, Liza's background is epic. So you'll have to go to YouTube and watch the video to see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah we have all these students and they all sign the door when they leave. It's amazing. Um, and it just feels like all of them people who I love and care about are behind me. So I often do my podcast here. But um, so anyway, I was, you know, I think it was about seven years ago, eight years ago, I was riding my bike and um, I had started and I was crossing the uh, highway and somebody was texting and driving wow. and they came out of nowhere and they hit me in the head with their car. <laughs> 
And I got hit on one side of my head, went on the hood of their car, got knocked unconscious, got thrown into the other, uh, thrown off the hood of the car into the middle of the intersection. I would have died, but there was a moped that actually, because I got thrown into the other lane in a grace oh, wow. of whatever, uh, whatever higher power you believe in, that moped went around me, giving the other t car time to stop and not run me over. Um, but I got a bilateral brain injury. I had bleeding in my brain, not much, but it was a subtural hematoma. And um, I lost my ability to communicate. And I've always been a really good communicator. And so I had to learn to communicate from the ground up. Wow. And I, before I had been an intuitive communicator, an intuitive teacher, and I really had to learn how to deconstruct communication bit by bit. And I started watching people and thinking, what makes one person listened to and one person ignored? And mm. you know, what are the mechanics of this? And I went from in the first month, you know, all the entire first day, you know, every day I would live my day, I would remember it, I'd go to sleep the next day, I'd only remember 25% of it. Wow. And so, you know, I was in really bad shape to suddenly realizing I could learn, I could teach myself how to communicate again, I could learn to get back to where I was. And I think the combination of having that experience of being very small when I was younger, and then kind of deconstructing how people claim space um, really sparked my passion about the work that I do. And it, it's a, you know, I love political science. It was my major in college and I love theater. And this is a, an acting and teaching actors. And this is this wonderful combination of the two, but certainly, you know, the experiences I have really sucked. <laughs> they were <laughs> fun, but, um, but they made me who I am. And I, you know, I think that you can take experiences and let them break you, or you can take experiences and hopefully learn from them and better yourself. So that's what I've tried to do. Well, first of all, we're happy you're still with us. Yeah, I am. <laughs> pretty scary for a while, yeah. Mm -hmm. Isn't it incredible that the, the spaces that we found safe, often as children, become the spaces of danger or insecurity as we grow. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think we don't reflect on that enough because oftentimes, you know, it's this, it's this old adage of we have a dream as a kid or we know how to survive our atmosphere or whatever. We get to third, fourth, fifth grade and voices outside of us start telling us, oh, you could never do that. You could never be that. You need to you know, pick something that makes more sense. And we get to middle school and we talk about in seventh grade what we want to do when we grow up. And mm -hmm. some, some adult tells us, no, that'll never happen. And it's almost like those safe spaces, whether figurative, figuratively or literally, as mm -hmm. children and the innocence of children actually can become the danger spaces of insecurity as we grow. And so it's, it's almost learning how to work through that and let go of that child blankie. <laughs> you know, yeah. emotional and psychological. And that is not an easy process at all. No, no, it's not. I mean, for me, my my childhood wasn't very safe. Um, and that was always kind of a flip for me is um, I remember going to kindergarten and kids just freaking out because they're, <laughs> you know, they didn't get the right potato chips in their lunch. And I remember thinking, how is this a big deal? Like, this is nothing. Like, we're great here, you know? So um, for me, I think as I got older, I learned 
how to, I, you know, I wouldn't go back to my childhood. I mean, I, I had some really wonderful times in my childhood. I have my father, I have my stepmother, um, and my mother when she was healthy, which wasn't often. Um, but, you know, and I had some incredible women who took me into their hearts and in their homes and mentored me and kind of became my aunts. But, um, but for me, I think a lot of my passion is really helping people who have some sort of um, thing that some barrier they face, whether it be their childhood or their um, some sort of ism they face or anything like that. I mean, that's why I volunteer time sometimes with um, high school students who are at risk because, you know, I, I relate. Yes, yes. So I want to go back to those adjectives that we talked about earlier in the show that, that you use yeah. to define yourself because there's, there's one of them that when I looked at your website really stuck out to me. And, and I think it's a word that, um, that needs what I like to call redeemed. Uh, some people mm -hmm. call it redefined. There's these words, you know, words are like gift wrapping and there's these words that people steal and, and yeah. they make them evil. And, and it takes work to redeem those words and get them back and give them the correct power. But the adjective, the word I'm talking about is, is uh, feminists. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about what, what the work looks like when, when you're talking about feminists. Right. And tell us about the work in reclaiming that word and, and giving it its proper place. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm really, I, I'm on a mission to make sure that I use that word whenever possible. Uh, I think that one thing that people do that's incredibly effective is they use certain words to label people to control them. And they, it's the three words that are used for women are feminist, crazy, and bitch. Mm -hmm. And within those three words, they're umbrella words that actually represent, so, you know, different things. So you know, crazy is hysterical, sensitive, whatever. Um, and uh, then we have a uh, feminist and then bitches, women who are angry, you know, we're not allowed to show our rage. Um, there's a great book, if you ever want to read it called Rage Becomes Her, I'm reading it, it's amazing. Um, but it's all about women's rage and how it's been demonized and feminist. And feminist is about women who advocate for themselves. Um, feminism ultimately is the belief that women should have equal rights and opportunities. Yes. So, you know, if you don't believe that women should have equal rights and opportunities, cool, you're not a feminist. But if you do, you're a feminist. And right. by demonizing that word, it's, it's actually a brilliant strategy. I think it's so, you know, in the way people message. If you tell people that believing in equal rights and opportunities means that you are a strident, you know, mean, whatever, militant bitch or whatever it is, um, then what do you do? You make it so they don't want to identify with a cause that right. is there to make their lives better. It's such, a, so for me, women need to re, we need to repurpose that word. We need to own that word. Um, and, you know, I think we also need to make sure that we're doing feminism in a really intersectional way because white feminism historically has been incredibly racist. You know, yep. we threw our black sisters under the bus so we could get the vote. You know, we, we were, um, we have not done well, uh, white women with, with our sisters of color. And, um, but I think intersectionality and intersectional feminism, what I always say to people is look, you know, if right now, if we could unite as women, we could really make some meaningful changes in the world and feminism 
is about doing that. And it's about supporting each other, uplifting each other, and uplifting by extension the world because the world can't really fly right if one wing of the world is, is not as strong as the other. Yeah, that's that's uh, I think that's really empowering because because we <laughs> I heard someone say it this simply one time. It was it was a group of men talking and and one one of the men was basically railing against feminists uh, in more or less words. And a guy looked at him and goes, "You should be the strongest supporter of feminism because if it weren't for your mom, you wouldn't be here." <laughs> And I, and I thought that I thought that was like one of the greatest things ever because it's like yeah hold on a second the power of life in the universe is female and so what are people thinking to negate that power it's in, but again and you and I talked about this pre-show it also dates back for the most part to Anglo males white males in America specifically and this idea of colonialism and power and supremacy and you know it's it's like everyone calls god he right study the hebrew language the majority of the adjectives for god were feminine not mm -hmm. masculine and mm -hmm. so it's this whole idea of robbing that life power so that you can have your own power and and uh and so yeah. i love when you talk about that yeah i think it's so important i mean i think it's tina fey does it as well you know mm -hmm. she has bitches get shit done thing. And I actually have a mug in my house that says that. Um, <laughs> and, you know? But it's like, to me, if someone calls somebody a bitch or a feminist or crazy, it's usually because they're stating an opinion. Yes. Um, and, you know, if someone were, I don't really get called that very often, but if someone, you know, if someone were to say, well, that's kind of a bitchy thing to say, or that's a bitch, I should, okay, that's cool, thanks. Because right. that means I just said something that had a backbone and I'm, I'm cool with that. You know, I'm not going to run from those words. I think a great example of this is actually when Trump said such a nasty woman mm. in the debate. And within like a day, they had the nasty woman Facebook page. They had, you know, nasty, I'm a nasty woman, like, you know, things on uh, t-shirts. Uh, it's very similar to the I'm speaking that Kamala Harris just did. Right. You know, it's a similar thing where it's, we are owning these moments of oppression or nevertheless, she persisted, you know, <laughs> you know, when McConnell said, well, nevertheless, she persisted and women went, hey, yeah, she persisted. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, I have a nevertheless, she persisted face mask <laughs> because I thought it was so cool. <laughs> and I'm a nerd and I was like, that's so cool. Um, but, you know, I think that it's important if someone tries to use those words against you, to do jujitsu and just say, yes, I am. I am indeed a yes. feminist. And if you don't believe women have should have equal rights and opportunities, then um, I think we should probably have a conversation about that because that's distressing. <laughs> to say the least, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's go here as we kind of start rounding things out, Eliza. I want to I give the people some actionable thoughts um, mm -hmm. for a few reasons because you, you obviously have a a uh, high passion level and, a, and a, a well of knowledge. And and I think you can inspire some people to new thoughts as, as you do. I also wanna ask these questions because I'm hoping it'll pique people's curiosity in a few months when the book comes out uh, in the spring. So give the people some thoughts on, on this question. What do we do as men? What What do we do as men to really 
if you could have a group of 100 men and they were ready to listen and to be engaged, what would you tell them? <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, I, you know, I think I'm going to go back to what we talked about earlier. Um, there's something that I talk about in my seminars and in my talks. Uh, usually it comes from a Q&A question, which is what do I, a woman will say, well, what do I do when I try to talk to a man? And he says, usually you're acting like a bitch or you're acting crazy. Um, and I call it the, I didn't do anything wrong. You're crazy defense. Now apologize. So I didn't do anything wrong. You're crazy. Now apologize. So the way things usually work is the woman will say, Hey, I didn't like the way that you said that. And the man will say, you're being extra sensitive. What's wrong with you? And the woman will say, I'm sorry and apologize. And the man will say, it's okay. And then the woman, man goes away feeling vindicated and not learning anything. And the woman goes away feeling like she's batshit bananas. Excuse mm. my language. Um, <laughs> and then it's a rinse and repeat cycle. And it happens with white people to people of color. Um, I think one of the things you said, and I don't know the exact verbiage you used is, you know, what do we do when we're ready to listen? Yes. I think really the answer is be ready to listen. Mm -hmm. uh, the very first thing and the most powerful thing we can do is when someone tells them something to believe them and then just say, what can I do differently? Um, the example that I like to give is, we were having a conversation about something, I don't even remember what it was. And a friend of mine who's a woman of color said to another white woman, um, no, actually it's not like that at all. It's like this, you, you know, that's, that's completely off track. And it was a, kind of a racist undertones that the white woman had said. And the white woman looked at her and said, oh, how very white of me, thank you. <laughs> and that was it. No. And then we kept talking. And it, was, it wasn't even a blip in the conversation right. because the person said, I hear you. I realized that was kind of like, okay, cool. I won't do that. And I think that it, it is the same for women. So if, you know, I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, and I can't go into it all now, but um, when I give talks and seminars and I do that remotely now, and you can still learn this stuff remotely. And I do have some tips on my YouTube page, for example, how to stop interruptions. And I have to actually do some more of those um, is making sure that your body and your voice are not doing things which are shutting people down. Yes. So for example, you're not interrupting, you're not mansplaining, you're not doing things with your body in terms of how you're holding your body in space that are making people feel small, like they can't express themselves. You're doing what you're not, your viewers may not see it now, but you're nodding your head. You know, a power move that sometimes is, happens is people don't move their heads when you talk to them. And that's an yes. absolute power move. You're yeah. nodding, saying, okay, okay. There are a lot of different things with your physicality and your voice that you can do immediately and actionably mm -hmm. that make a huge difference. And I think just believing people and then learning about communication. I mean, you know, you take my book and you learn about what women are dealing with. And you learn about what not to do <laughs> or you know you do one of my seminars or whatever you know you can actually that's the beauty of it and as women on the flip side of that you know we need to work on unfortunately because not all men are, are asking these questions how do we shut down interruptions how do we redirect when somebody says no this is your fault or what you know how do we do this in such a way that we can continue to live our life and not feel like we're constantly swimming upstream and creating a huge conversation right. sometimes you want to have that conversation but sometimes you just want to do your work and just shut the thing down <laughs> right. you know you don't have time to hit right. every single thing yeah 
Um, you actually answered the next question I was going to ask, and that was about women, and, and I love that. And I do want to say, because you, you uh, alluded to it a bit, and that is, especially for men, um, the physical presence can oftentimes be the, the massive brick wall mm-hmm. <laughs> or the open doorway. Mm-hmm. And, and I think oftentimes, and again, coming from a male's perspective, um, I, I think men don't spend enough time on physical communication, on facial communication. And that, that is a, and I will tell you, going back to my experience with teenage girls, after spending years, not only raising teenage girls, but working with teenage girls, mm-hmm. if you want to work on physical presence, work with teenagers, because <laughs> They respond to physical presence almost immediately. And you can kind of know, ooh, I did something there that I shouldn't have done. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. okay, that actually opened the door to conversation. And, and right. that's a powerful thing. And especially if, for men that are in leadership positions as bosses, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, what do they say? 80, 90% of communication is actually nonverbal. Yeah, it's only mm-hmm. 7% is what you say. Yeah, yet we don't work on... The nonverbal rarely, rarely, and and I and I see leaders and bosses constantly making mistakes that you can you can see people shrink. I mean, you can cut it with a knife, and you can see it physically. Absolutely. And yeah, so I think that's powerful. Yeah. Do I have time to give a tip to people? Oh, one hundred percent. Please do. This is okay. your show, girl. Do it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I'd like to kind of leave people with a couple of actionable things to do. So um, this is for women specifically. Um, one of so one of the things that you often hear when you go to talks on communication is to vary your cadence so go from fast to slow or slow to fast and the problem with that is that in every conversation there's a socially acceptable amount of time that you're supposed to talk so if you've ever been at a party and some person's just going on and on and everybody's like you're going to patch your time friend like come on (laughs) if you're a boss you can do that but everybody else can't So, but the problem is what they found is women need to, in a professional setting and actually in most settings, have to offer more evidence to be Mm -hmm. heard and believed. Mm -hmm. So a man will say in, you know, his little allotted point of time, I think we should adopt this pen. And the women will say, I think we should adopt this pen because I've done research and there's this red thing and it's it's red, right? We actually have to fit more verbiage into the same amount of time. But the problem is that speaking very quickly is very disempowered speech pattern. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I tell women to do is just to practice slowing down. And how you can do that in a professional setting is instead of giving all your evidence, you can say, I think we should adopt this pen. I've done some research. And if you're interested, I'd love to share it. Yes. Then you bounce that ball to everybody else. They then bounce it back and you have a whole nother chunk of time where you can talk about all those things you wanted to squeeze in first. So for women, learning to find those moments where you are slowing down is actually a way of claiming power. Um, And I think that's really, really important. So that's one tip. Um, The other tip is to use silence. Women don't pause nearly as much because we are interrupted statistically more. So if you, but with silence is an incredibly powerful tool. You can use it to help you when you're stuck and you don't know what to say. Um, and you can use it to make a point. So one of the things I tell women to do in order to avoid interruption and to utilize silence is just to make sure they're maintaining eye contact Mm -hmm. while they're doing silence. And then men can help women use silence more by not interrupting during those silent moments. Silence is really powerful. 
So those are two very tiny little tips that, you know, I always like to give little tiny tips for people to, to kind of walk away with and have something in their back pocket. Well, you're on my brainwave because that was, again, my next question. So great job. <laughs> I, I love to end every show with people giving some advice or tips and that, that claiming that space, that power back. And that's, that's what I was trying to tell young women, especially is when, when you're having this conversation, I can challenge young women to do this with their father figure or their, or their father. And that is just, just to be courageous enough to go, dad, I'm learning a new way of communication and I want to try this. And it's been amazing to hear some teenage girls be able to do that and the dads that are gracious enough to mm -hmm. kind of role play that. And what's funny is, and you actually mentioned this earlier in the show, it actually changes the dad or the male figure more than it does the teenage girl because it causes dad again to reflect and go, oh, wow, <laughs> like I, I need to change some of this. And so to me, when, when I see a, a woman claim that space of power mm -hmm. in the right way, like we've kind of given some examples of how when we talked about white feminism and things, mm -hmm. they can rob it, but in, in the way that is within their fullness, I actually believe that it causes males to pay more attention than anything else in the world. Mm -hmm. Because there is something, I'm going to call it holy and sacred, <laughs> about a woman claiming that space in her full power, and it is undeniable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and frankly, we should all have that ability. 100%, yes. Everybody should yeah. be able to claim space, and they should yes. be able to claim space equally and be received um, with the same level of acceptance and someone hearing them. And regardless of who you are and you, what gender you are, what race you are, we, we should all be listening to each other more, I think. And isn't that the saying that you people use often? We all just want to be heard and seen. And that's that's really the human DNA. <laughs> heard, seen, and believed. Yes, and believed. I love that. Uh, there's a great book by one of my favorite writers, Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a Buddhist monk. And he wrote a book called The Power of Silence. Mm. And it is a, if, for, if you haven't read it, if our listeners haven't read it, it will change your perspective on silence. And it'll give you some really key things to do to use the power of silence. Because let's be honest, we have so much noise around us, whether it's talking or television or social media or whatever. I think silence is actually more, more uh, needed now than potentially ever, whether it's internally or externally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not very good at silence, which is why I, <laughs> I force myself to be silent. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> For 20 minutes a day, I'm gonna shut up. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, Eliza, um, I, I have, we're going to, we're going to do our fun little game that I do with every, every guest. It's uh, five questions. We do this to close out the show. Five questions, one word answers only. Oi, okay. So, well, I did, I just put a pull to it. I know. Um, and then we'll start closing out the show. So are you ready okay. for the five questions? Not at all, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, first of all, do you regarding books? Do you prefer digital or paper? Digital. Coffee. My, my publicist is going to kill me for saying. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. One word: digital. Coffee or tea? Tea. Uh, what's your one guilty pleasure in life? One. Guess that's my answer. One. <laughs> um. <laughs> 
<laughs> Can you tell I like to think I really never stayed within the lines as a child. I'll find yep. a way out of anything. <laughs> Same way. When I was a kid, they told us to color in the box. I'm like, why is there even a box? Yeah, what box? <laughs> Didn't even notice that box. We're going okay. to keep that, nope, we're gonna keep that answer because I love it. That's my favorite answer to that yeah. question ever. Well, <laughs> um, one thing you cannot live without. Oh. Hmm. Mm. Connection. Mm, nice. And your favorite season of the year? Summer. Summer. Nice. Except the closed rock and fall. So. <laughs> the closed rock and fall. <laughs> but, but yeah, if I had to pick, I'd say summer. That's exactly right. Yeah. Awesome. Eliza, this has been great. Um, your knowledge and your expertise and your passion has shown through. And, and I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing with our guests your message. So thank you. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. Really. Thank you so much. And we survived internet issues. We did it. <laughs> I know, right? That was crazy. I'm so glad we got through that. That was kind of sketchy. <laughs> yep, we did. Um, Eliza, tell the people where they can connect with you if you have a, a particular Facebook, uh, social media platform you want them to connect on or where, where would you like them to go? I'm glad you asked that question, Mitch. Um, so <laughs> they can go to my website which is elizavancourt.com. There's no U in Vancourt. Everybody puts a U in. So it's E-L-I-Z-A-V-A-N-C-O-R-T.com. Um, and also connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and if you want to go to my YouTube page, you can. Um, I, I have some cool stuff on it, but I don't keep up with it. So probably I'd say LinkedIn and my website are probably the best ways to go. There are some people who, and I still have room on my page, um, who've connected with me personally on Facebook. And as long as you say, I heard about you from Mitch's show, I will say yes. Um, because my professional page on Facebook is just like a graveyard. I've neglected it. And I, I really like real connection. So yeah. I'm just going to keep letting people uh, friend me on Facebook until uh, Facebook says I've hit my limit. So oh, yeah, awesome. I, I love meeting interesting people there. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm looking at your website now, livesofancourt.com. And there's actually, uh, for the listeners, there's a LinkedIn um, symbol in the top right corner. You can click that and that'll take you to Eliza's LinkedIn page um, and you can find her there. Also, brothers and sisters, you can pre-order Eliza's new book, um, A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice and Be Heard. You can find that on Amazon for pre-order or you can go through, um, find it also on elizabancourt.com as well. We'll put those in the show notes. Eliza, again, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll visit a little bit after we uh, stop recording. Brothers and sisters, thank you for listening to The Mitch Gray Show. Be sure to uh, follow us on social media at mgraymedia, G-R-A-Y. Subscribe to us on YouTube, Mitch Gray Media, and subscribe to the show wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Um, I will tell you we're in the middle of changing podcasting platforms, but by the time this show releases, that should be done, so we shouldn't have any issues. But I hope you are well, brothers and sisters. Please, if you are a male listening to this show, do all you can to empower the women around you. Um, it is an honor and a pleasure to be able to do that. If you are a female listening to this show, do all you can to empower yourself and those around you as well. And brothers and sisters, we are in this together. There's no better way to live than to live in unity and to walk alongside each other. So thanks again for listening to the show. and We will talk to you soon. That was awesome. Good job. Yay.